0: Happyopolis, a podcast about urban health and well-being in the Arab world and Germany.
1: How can we make city life healthier, more social, and of course, happier? Is there a scientific formula for a happy city? And can cities be compared, no matter on which continent you find yourself? In each episode of Happyopolis, we'll be featuring cities across the Arab world and Germany, from Berlin and Hamburg to Kuwait City and Cairo. Why these cities? You'd be surprised just how many ideas for a happy and healthy city life they've developed. Solutions that are worth discovering and transferring to your own community. So join me on this podcast to hear members of the Arab-German Young Academy of Sciences and Humanities, IKEA, and invited experts as they share their research and innovative solutions. I'm Dr. Louise Lambert, your host, and welcome to Happyopolis. Considered the fastest-growing Arab city, Cairo's population of 21.7 million has been growing on average by 2% every year. But if you've been to Cairo, you also know what residents experience traffic jams, excessive noise, difficulties getting to work and back, as well as major pollution. City residents are heavily dependent on buses, microbuses, and tuk-tuks to get around, and that's on top of the 4.5 million cars on city roads at any one time. The heat and smog do not help, and air pollution leads to about 15,000 premature deaths each year. Noise levels between 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. reach a stunning 85 decibels. That's louder than a freight train. Sleep, as you can imagine, is elusive for most residents, and the impacts on health and well-being take a toll, and not least of which is the cultural heritage also endangered by pollution. And yet, efforts to make the city more joyful and livable are underway. These include expanded and modernized public transportation systems, city redesign, as well as the building of a new capital where mobility and happiness are explicit priorities. Cairo has become the place to watch, and for good reason. Located as a global epicenter, people from the North and South coexist, and a spirit of openness and kindness between so many materialize on a daily basis. In this diversity, creativity thrives. Cairo is said to be a city where there is nothing that does not exist and where everything can be found. After all, the commonly iterated expression, o or Egypt as the mother of the world, is not said in haste. The country as a whole, and certainly Cairo, has been at the forefront of innovation for millennia. It is known for its legendary singers, authors, and universities. The prestigious Al-Azhar University, well over a thousand years old, makes for a diverse and international educational landscape. Egypt is a pillar of the Arabic culture and language, and a leading figure in the Arab region. How this blend of influences come to life in the capital will be discussed by several guests. To begin, we are joined by Hossam Elokta, Operations Manager and Master Planning Lead of the Happy Cities Initiative, operating in Cairo and other cities in the Middle East and South as well as North America. Welcome to our podcast, Hossam.
2: Thank you, Louise. It's uh, really good to be here and Great to talk to you again. It's been it's been a
0: while.
1: Awesome. It's been yeah. a while. Yes. Now we'll talk about the happy cities organization in a moment, but to set the scene for our listeners, let's understand the idea of a happy city, which necessarily implies there are unhappy cities. (laughs) So how would you describe an unhappy city and its contributors?
2: There's a lot of things that contribute to our well-being, right? But at the very basics, there's the foundations of, you know, living, which is having safety, security, shelter, and nutrition. Beyond that, we look at, you know, are you able to feel like you are in control of your environment? So mastery is a really big deal. So when when people feel like you know, every time they leave their house, they're not, they don't have any kind of agency over how their day goes. Um, one day you get to work in, in thirty minutes; the other day it's two hours. Um, that's that creates a a feeling of unhappiness um, when uh, people are not able to live a healthy life in their city, aren't able to access healthy food, aren't able to live an active lifestyle, are Basically, sitting all day, that contributes to unhappiness. And the most important thing, of course, is social relationships. Um, social relationships are foundational to our well being, um, foundational to our happiness. So, when people aren't able to meet with friends, to see family, to engage within their community and be part of something that is bigger than them, they are more likely to be unhappy. Usually we look at it from the other ways. All these things make you happier and the city that we live in should enable us to have more opportunities to do the things that make us happy and should make it harder to make the decisions that are bad for us.
1: I love this definition. Now, you grew up in Cairo and have firsthand experience of what it is like to live there. But you are also part of the organization called Happy Cities, based out of Vancouver, Canada, and which was started by our friend Charles Montgomery, a journalist who toured the world, engaging with people to understand their experiences of urban spaces. His very popular book of the same name, Happy Cities, became an inspirational guide for urban planners everywhere. So what does Happy Cities do? And most of all, why?
2: We help city builders make cities and communities happier, healthier, and more inclusive. That is the the short answer. How we do it? In so many different ways. So some people just want to learn What is a happy city? How do I do it? And we help them understand these concepts. And then usually they ask us, okay, well, how do we transform this area to make it happier? And we take them through the whole journey. So we take it from, you know, the education and the research on what is a happy city to the design of how can we transform spaces, streets, communities to be happier communities. Through the design process, we think part of a happy city is actually how you build it not just what you build. So the process of city building can make people happier um, or less happy. And for us, that means people feeling like they had a say in how their city was built, right? Like when community feels like they were part of this, they are more likely to feel a sense of belonging to the community or to the space that they built. Um, And then finally, uh, taking it to implementation. to actually building out the stuff Uh, making sure the details get right, making sure everything happens. And then once it gets built, we actually help city builders to assess their success. So, you know, like you built this public space, it's greatly designed. And then a year later, no one is using it. Why, what went wrong? How can we fix it? So when developers or city builders or governments want to see the results of their success, We help them do that by basically measuring either, you know, how happy people feel in a community, um, how people are using public spaces, you know, like how many people are sitting, how many people are just walking through, how fast are they walking through, what kind of people are using the space, you know, is it only men that feel safe to use the space or are we seeing women and children as well? Is there a diversity of people using the space? Can people with wheelchairs use it? So it's like the whole range of, you know, from research to action, to the stories. And then we try to make those kind of in a loop, in a circle, so that they all feed into each other.
1: Fantastic. So let's bring it to our city in question, to Cairo. Now, there are many pressing issues in Cairo, but you have some very ambitious plans to transform it and other developments near it into something far more livable and, of course, happier. Tell us about those projects.
2: As Happy Cities, we we work all across the world, right? Um, you know, things get uh, quite specific, like creating multi-family design guidelines. Um, we're doing this for a city called Port Moody in uh, Canada, and they are seeing a lot of developers building new, very dense buildings because there's a huge housing need in, uh, in Canada, and they're seeing a lot of these buildings are not really contributing to the quality of life that they want to see. So we are working with them to identify, well, how do you design a building that makes people happier, that enriches their social lives, that helps neighbors know each other? Because the trend in like very dense apartment buildings now is that you just like you get out of your unit into the elevator to your car and you don't see or meet anyone in your building. Um, So we are, trying to kind of create that village effect in apartment buildings so that the corridors um, uh, are more welcoming for people to stay in. Elevator lobbies, entrance lobbies, amenity rooms are not just hidden somewhere in the back uh, of the building. They're actually inviting spaces that open on courtyards um, and there's things that people can share like you know, workshops or music rooms in their building or kids rooms or anything that brings people together, right?
1: And would this be similar to perhaps what you do in the Middle East where societies are more collective? Would there be specific strategies or interventions that we'd use to reflect that? So
2: you know there's something that's really popular right now in uh, in Canada called co-housing. And it's basically when a bunch of people, groups of households come together and they build their own apartment building and they design it together and they do it together. And the first time I heard of it, I was like, um, "That sounds like my family's home." Growing up, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, many people they live in a like in a home with the rest of their family or in the same building. Um, I remember uh, a colleague was doing some work on uh, in um, uh, in a community in Egypt, uh, and he was saying like they found the surveys that it was something like. 30% of their relatives live in the same building and 70% live in, within the same block, you know? So like this wow, collective living wow. is um, is ingrained in Middle Eastern tradition city of city building, right? Uh, if you think about like the courtyard homes um, in a lot of Arab cities and, and, uh, and Islamic cities, These courtyards are usually shared between people of, you know, your immediate families, like um, the 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 siblings and their families and the grandparents. The house I grew up in was my grandparents in the ground floor, and then my uncles on each floor, and we were on the fourth floor, and that was like, and we had a little shared uh, shared spaces. It was it was exactly like the co housing experience they have here in Canada, but for us, it's usually with family. In the in the West, they People recreate it, the same thing, but with um, with strangers, which I actually find also quite endearing as a story.
1: Kind of interesting, yeah. Um, so one of the ways in which the Middle East, of course, differs, it's these more collective societies, people live together by default, doesn't need to be planned, it just is. But there's also the Islamic cultures. Mm. So I'm wondering, are there ways in which you build or organize or just do things differently when it comes to happy cities around Islam? Um,
2: Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting coming from the, you know, kind of my education and my initial kind of experience working as an urban planner in the West and then coming back to work in the Middle East and learning and unlearning, kind of, so to speak, because the Islamic tradition of city building is so rich, but we rarely learned it in school, certainly don't learn it in the West. Um, so it was, a, it was a journey that I had to 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 undergo, and one of the things that are so ingrained into uh, into Islamic uh, culture is like well, of course the mosque, right? The mosque as the cultural and community space in every single community. There's no real like in Cairo, for example. I don't think there's a bylaw that says that you need to have a mosque within uh, X amount of meters of every household, but there always is. Even if it's even if it's a a small room. Uh, off of someone's house right and that becomes a community space whether it was you know it allowed by policy intentional or not it, it it is an example of where culture dominates right and the one thing you know you, you realize it, Islam kind of forces that to happen because people need to go to the mosque. some people go every day, five times a day some people just go the once a week but you know the, the, it becomes this community space. When that need is not there as much, you find that um, you know that there isn't really a secular replacement for a place that people go once a week. and i I absolutely think that there, there should there could be something, you know, it's not uh, you could have these same effects whether you're religious or not, but um, but but this is one of those things that um, that that are really strong uh, in Islamic cultures. That you, you will meet people in your neighborhood by default just because you know you you go to the mosque once a week and we see this in in, in, in communities that um, uh, like heavily church going communities in North America where like the church on Sunday everyone knows each other right and so so that uh, that factor is powerful and it's I think it's it's valuable to learn from these traditions to see how they can um, they can translate to to city building across cultures.
1: Yeah and again I think these are great examples of how uh, a building for whatever purpose but in this case religiosity also brings people yeah. together and sort of structures what they do on a daily basis yeah. or uh, weekly whatever it may the, be. The
2: unfortunate thing is is like the trend of like people are increasingly driving to the mosque every Friday and I keep I keep reminding people that like it's part of our prophetic tradition is actually to walk to the mosque. Um, and, and, and every, and the, the, the prophetic tradition is like every step you take to the mosque, you gain more, you know, hasanat more, 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 more good deeds. Um, and, uh, so, so, uh, the, 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 it's, it's one of these things that, you know, we need constant, constant reminders, constant revivals, the part of community walking to the mosque, this is, this is such an important part of, you know, the, the tradition that is an inherently very social tradition.
1: So you've collected a lot of lessons along the way, uh, whether it's um, where to put a building, how much parking to give and, and how much parking not to give. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've done work in cities all over the world. What would be your main takeaways for urban planners, but policymakers as well and other stakeholders in their aims to build better cities?
2: I always like to say that the most important things are often the the boring stuff. Unfortunately, um, I think you you can't talk about urban well being without talking about walkability, without giving people options, destinations within walking distance of where they live. The moment that someone has to like get in a car to go buy a carton of milk, you you, you lose so much. Um, you lose so much. First, you have to create enough space in your cities for for, for all these minuscule trips. You have to create uh, space for them to park. Um, and the moment you start doing that, the streets become busier and they become less safe, which makes people who are who want to just walk for leisure less likely to do it, which makes parents less likely to leave, let their children roam around their community. And... Um, And the research is showing that the single most significant uh, kind of city building impact on the strength of social relationships in a community is how many people leave to their daily destinations on foot or on bike or on transit versus how many um, do it by car. Because when you're, when you get in your car from your garage and you zoom out of your, out of your house no one is going to slam their break, their brakes to say hi to a neighbor, right? Like, but if you're walking and you, your, your eyes are meeting, you know, in the Middle East, we say assalamu alaikum. And, 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 and e- even that minuscule interaction is so powerful. Um, that researchers are calling these like weak ties. You know, even just people that you say hello to and you don't really have a conversation to, they have an impact on our happiness. But being able to walk to like a local grocery store, a local coffee shop, this kind of convivial, easy, simple life that used to be such a big part of um, uh, uh, of Middle Eastern communities, and still in 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 a lot of the the urban centers, a, a lot of uh, the central areas in Cairo and uh, and the older areas in Dubai, and uh, and all of our historic centers have been built that way, right? This um, this this simple lifestyle where people have more options to get around in their city, um, but be, be, be beyond your own neighborhood, the only way to expand that is by investing so heavily in public transit. Mm,
1: so it sounds like you're saying, at least the message for stakeholders and. Um, you know people in charge essentially is it's not just the infrastructure of the city but it's again paying attention to what happens with people and putting importance on their lives and the spaces in between those people is is really should be the starting point for what a happy city looks like. absolutely
2: and invest heavily in public transit it is it is it is the only way to get out get people moving without without tearing down half your city
1: Fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Hussam. We all look forward to experiencing Happy Cities, wherever that may be. And for more information on Hussam's work, visit happycities.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Luis. We are joined by Agia member Maha Nasser, who is joining us from her car, on the way to work as a professor of pharmaceutics and industrial pharmacy at the Ayn Shams University. Now Maha, you drive every day in Cairo. Tell us what that experience is like and how it impacts you. Good morning,
3: Agia. I'm joining you today for my trip to work from my home, which is in the 5th Settlement, which is a quiet area in New Cairo. But then my work is in El Abbasiyya, which is in the center of Cairo, which of course is very crowded. And if you ask any Egyptian if the driving is an enjoyable experience, it's definitely not. Because, as you all know, Cairo is very, very busy. It's very lively. Unless you go to work at like 1am or 2am, then it should be fine or not. But basically, it's not an enjoyable experience because almost everyone is going to work at the same time. The streets are always, always crowded. You never find like a safe distance between each car and the other. We're all like close together. It's like a collaborative, interactive driving experience where we all share the misery of being late to work or stuck in traffic. To give you a glimpse of how it's busy, for example, if you encounter traffic lights and they are red, maybe you have to experience like two or three cycles where it goes from red to green, red to green, and then you are still in your place. So basically it takes like 45 minutes or one and a half hour to go. Of course, as you can see, that's the sound of the car sensors because a car just came close by to my car and the car is complaining. For me it really affects my mood, it affects my health because I really arrive to work totally exhausted and I feel drained because of all the tension that you experience while driving and of course it's reflected on the quality of work, it's reflected on my mood and my physiotherapist says also that it's reflecting on my muscles, my shoulder muscles, my um, leg muscles, they are always tense because of my daily driving experience. And I think it would have been much, much easier if it was easier to get around in the city, it would have been definitely, definitely much better. So yeah, it's not a happy experience for me. And But still, if you want to experience this adrenaline rush and tension every day, please join me on my trip to work.
1: That does not sound enjoyable indeed. How do you make the
3: best of it? And what advice would you give a novice driver in Cairo? But then on a positive note, I try to make use of this time in something useful. For example, I attend online meetings. I schedule online meetings with my PhD and master scholars to discuss the progress of their work. It's always time to reconnect with your family and friends, even your friends from your childhood. It's a long drive time. So make all the phone calls that you cannot do while working or while at home. And if it's also a long drive, I can always start a meditation session inside the car. But then I need to give you a few tips if you're planning to drive in the streets of Cairo so that you can be fully prepared. First of all, you have to be fully attentive of the road all the time because you're driving with lots of cars, buses, bicycles, motorcycles pedestrians crossing from every possible or impossible points in the street so you need to be fully prepared and fully attentive if you want to come back home you and your car in one piece secondly don't expect to stick to your lane while driving because most of the time there is no lane so basically don't expect to stick to your lane also uh, we have an unspoken rule which is called survival of the strongest And by the strongest, I mean the strongest driver. Because imagine if the street is five lanes and then somehow it constricts to become only one lane. So only one driver is going to pass with his car. So unless you are the most confident and most determined driver, and you are going to take some steps in order to pass this point, maybe you will stick there forever. So survival of the strongest, you have to be the strongest driver. Finally, we have lots of radars in the street and uh, sometimes you don't have the speed allowance signs. So sometimes you're driving but you do not know your speed. So either you Google that up or you uh, ask a local, otherwise you may find yourself fined for something that you don't remember in a road that you don't remember speeding in in the first place. And finally, there is no safe distance between the cars. Expect always, all the time, that the streets are crowded and the cars are very close to each other. So you have to get used to that. But then, I know it's a different experience from driving in European countries, where, for example, those are more enforced, they are more prominent. You have several precautionary and safety measures which are taken while driving. But then drive safe wherever you are, in Egypt, in Europe, in any other country. And thank you for giving me the chance to share with you my driving experience in the streets of Cairo.
1: Thank you, Maha. And most of all, good luck on the roads and be safe. (laughs) To help us understand what is happening in terms of urban mobility in Cairo, today we speak to Mohamed Hegazi, director, principal, and co-founding partner of Transport for Cairo. He is an applied urban data scientist, policy entrepreneur, and avid cyclist. Welcome, and thank you for joining
0: us. Thank you for having me.
1: On your website, transportforcairo.com, you have a great photo where there's a tall fence And on one side, there is a heavily congested road with three, maybe four, it's hard to tell, lanes of heavy traffic. And on the other side of that fence, a completely empty rail or metro track with zero movement. Can you tell us about that photo?
0: Yes, that photo is like from the Giza neighborhood, and that is the railway track. Uh, It's pretty old. Egypt has one of the oldest railway tracks in the world. We're talking late 19th century. The network and it's getting revamped now to start to be used more actively and it really shows us how in a lot of African cities the road infrastructure is completely overwhelmed particularly by private vehicles which take a lot of space whereas the public modes of travel the trains that we share or the buses that we share are really what we need to get through this concession and start having functional livable cities.
1: Now, you also include the tagline on your website, use data, design solutions, help people. Very concise. I love it. What does this mean and how does it play into
0: the aims of the organization? So let's take a look at our namesake, Cairo. And we work there, but we also work all over the African continent, East, West, North and South. And if you look at the cities that are coming up, it's a unique time in history. It's the first time that cities are urbanizing, societies are urbanizing into cities before the industrialization process takes place. So we tend to urbanize in a very different fashion than cities in the West, in Europe or Northern America it tends to be flatter. It tends to be more widespread. It tends to be less planned. So a city like Cairo that goes like by 23, 24 million people now. And it is growing, I kid you not, by 800,000 citizens a year. That's the size of a medium-sized European city. Every year, added on top of it. Well, where do you start? Where do you go from there? And this is where we really think one needs to be very targeted in using data to create the best decisions possible to guide this planning, understand what is happening, but also model what can take place and intervene accordingly. Because the reality of urbanization in Africa is that unlike anywhere else in the world, it is outrunning us. We'll never be fast enough for it. So we need to outrun it by being very targeted through the use of the best technologies that we have.
1: So can you share some of your success stories in Cairo? What is it that you've accomplished so far?
0: So what we do primarily is we get into a city and we map the entire public transport network that there is. And public transport is important. It covers buses, it covers minibuses that are not run by the city, this organically growing sector, sometimes called informal transport or popular transport. It covers the metro. Cairo has three metro lines. They're the densest in the world. It covers everything that people take to go to work and back every day that's not a private car or a private motorcycle. And this map is a giant database. It allows us to see how neighborhoods are connected. It allows us to calculate how much time it takes from one area to another. And it allows us to get a lot of qualitative understanding. Because we send a team of equally males and females to ride these modes professionally, day in, day out, to create this rich map that we then use for planning. So. What are our biggest successes? I would say that we're helping the city, the Ministry of Transport, the international organizations that fund the majority of our public transport, plan better. We helped the World Bank. They came to us a couple of years ago and we're like, what's the best place to make an intervention in Cairo? And we used the data and we identified a corridor and it was, if you intervene there, you will benefit the biggest amount of people with the biggest amount of benefit, and it is socioeconomically uh, taken into account. These are people who need this benefit for their social mobility. Uh, other projects, planning projects like that, until it act- ultimately shapes the user experience. So providing this data to the users through trip planning apps, Google Maps, for instance, where the providers of the data there, but also in the physical hardware. So I think the project that I'm quite proud of is our collaboration with the Cairo Metro and the design of the maps that are in the network that guide people to use the system, access the neighborhood around it, and feel empowered in using a better public transport system.
1: That's brilliant. And on the human front, transportation is something that most of us take for granted until we no longer have access to it. Or never had it in the first place, and now do. How has this changed the lives of people, and whose lives
0: has it changed the most? That's a brilliant question. So if you look at the transport networks in the developing markets we're covering here, the transport system is as much a system of the producers of transport as it is of the users of transport. So if we started today's conversation thinking as passengers trying to get to our work, to our education, to our health facility, in Cairo, as in other African cities, it's a labor generator. It's a huge job opportunity. We're talking about 25,000 microbuses. Some of them are driver owned. Some of them are like small mom and pop, small micro businesses you own two or three cars, you rent them out, and there's an entire value chain of workers. We're talking hundreds of thousands of workers who are dependent on a system that is very labor-intensive, that is not optimized for uh, the benefits that it can provide to the workers, but actually takes a lot from them health-wise and financially and their time due to inefficiencies, before we start talking about them providing a service. And it is in this sense that we always need to look. It's the same as Uber. It's a platform. It has both sides, suppliers and demand. And from the demand side, good transport is really about economic empowerment. And it's really about fairness, justice. I grew up in a neighborhood in Cairo that has access to the Cairo Metro, which is a big state-funded project. In uh, seven years ago, it used to take 93% of every dollar spent in the country for public transport. It was this single metro line in one city. And it makes me lucky. For the cheapest fare on a per kilometer basis, I can access so many jobs. And that's what our data-driven research shows. So many opportunities. It empowers me. But people who are lower on the socioeconomic spectrum... People who have structural hidden disadvantages living in outside areas need to travel an hour, two, two and a half hours to get to start their working day somewhere. And this is really the kind of structural fairness that can be embedded through an effective public transport system.
1: Transport for Cairo um, also emerged because of a need in urban mobility across an established city. Um, But what advice would you give city planners developing new cities or expanding new areas of cities so that services like yours are integrated and seamless?
0: Absolutely. Well, the first thing is we need to distinguish between the context because cities are not all the same an American city or in Canada is a very different urban starting point and uh, zoning laws and the shape of what ought to be in the end than a European context where you're really talking about optimizing what is happening there than an Asian context which is about a lot of density you have a lot of people moving to very big cities that are on small spaces versus African cities, which are just outgrowing all the projections faster and more uncontrolled. So you need to pick the context. Now, if you're going to create a new neighborhood, design it around public transport. No, it's not about the public transport, actually. Even though I map it, I prefer to take my bike. It's such a better user experience. It's so much healthier for the city and for myself, and in an age of climate transition that we are in, and the issues that are being thrown at us, the need to mitigate, to pollute less, but also to adapt to a changing environment, this is what I would plan for. How can people's trajectories that they do regularly, and that is the commute to work, or the commute to educational establishments, be it a mother taking her child in the morning, a parent visiting, an older parent, a grandparent socially, or just seeing friends. And it's really planning for that. So you have a great neighborhood. And the name escapes me in the north of Vienna. And this one has a railway connection to downtown Vienna. It's 20 minutes, which is faster than a lot of neighborhoods inside the city. And yet the entire area is designed around active mobility, walking and cycling. So you can live your life on a bike until you park it in or take it with you on the railway to get into the city. And then you have access to everything that the city provides you access to. And this transit-oriented development from a vantage point of time is what needs to happen, and I stress on the time, because a 20-minute commute is an order of magnitude different from a 40-minute of commute. If you spend more than an hour a day commuting, your chances of divorce and obesity and lower quality of life are multiplied. We don't want that, and this is why uh, thinking from a time element, how much time does it take me to do what I need to do, Is really powerful. And I love what you've
1: said. It's not just about transportation, but it's thinking about what do people need? So really taking a human-centered approach and expanding from there versus infrastructure approach and then trying to fit it on people. So I I love this. Um, To end our interview, I'd love to hear how you think progress in urban development or urban mobility will change not only Cairo's future,
0: but cities as a whole. Oh, absolutely. Because if you look at every city coming out through every age, it is a function of the transportation technology that was there when the city was built. And this is why European cities tend to be so pedestrian friendly at their course, because of the time that they grew and because that shaped in a lock-in the trajectory for the long term. Um And this can be positive, but also negative. So let's take, for instance, uh, the townships of South Africa. So if you go to Cape Town or to Johannesburg, you have the townships that were constructed during uh, the area of apartheid, difficult times, to literally separate their inhabitants from the city. But now they're very active, vibrant communities. People live there and they still go to work. So... and intervention that took place there, the bus rapid transit system, failed financially because it was imported from a different context with a different history. But now we're seeing some very inspiring work. The minibuses I talked about earlier, these 14-seaters, they're amazing. You get in them in the morning, you have a seat, you drive, it's a long distance, but this is a historical inheritance, and you arrive. So if you look at the time element, it will take a 30, 35 minutes, which is okay. And there is amazing work taking place there, supported by the World Bank and the South African Development Agency and other local entities. Very important to have the local control of the process on professionalizing these services and the outcomes. They're magnificent. We're talking the same amount of workers, 20 vehicles instead of 28. Uh, the owners, and you're talking a widow of 30 years who owns a vehicle and it's her sole source of income. This matters. Becoming a shareholder, getting paid dividends instead of having to wake up in three in the morning to change a spare part. This is life changing for families. The drivers working eight hour instead of 12 hour shifts and getting benefits and starting to become part of the formal economy, paying taxes. And it is profitable. How the hell does this happen? It sounds too good to be true. Well, the reason is this professionalization of the system got rid of so many inefficiencies that are there. So many inefficiencies that we can see through our data. In Cairo, we could prove that these informal networks left organically as they are are gender unsensitive. They systematically benefit the travel trajectories of men over women. So it's these kind of local interventions that when we scale will allow us to live with what we are given in terms of urban form better, but also adapt to a changing world because we need to remember, we need to electrify, we need to decarbonize.
1: So get transportation right, get cities right, and get well-being right as the outcome. Thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: On our next podcast, we will join you from Hamburg, Germany's most important and largest port city, where we'll talk about the concept of fab cities, as well as the curious concept of second cities. Make sure to join us to understand why less well-known cities might in fact be the most interesting. Don't miss it. On behalf of Agia, the Arab-German Young Academy of Sciences and Humanities, I'm your host, Dr. Louise Lambert, and you've been listening to Happyopolis, a podcast on the best of urban health and happiness, from cities like Berlin and Hamburg to Kuwait City and Cairo. Agya brings together excellent Arab and German scholars across 23 countries to jointly address shared challenges and develop solutions through sustainable research cooperation. To learn more about the Academy, visit us at agya.info
0: Happyopolis is a podcast by the Arab-German Young Academy of Sciences and Humanities, AGYA, in cooperation with Charité University Medicine Berlin. To learn more about the Academy, visit us at agya.info. Happyopolis is a production by We Are Producers. Agia is sponsored by the German Federal Ministry of Education and Research, BMBF, and various Arab corporation partners. This podcast is funded by the Senate Chancellery for Higher Education and Research, Berlin.